Well, good morning. It is my privilege to get to open the Word of God with you today. But before let's do it, let's, let's pray together and ask God's blessing on this time. God, you are our master. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to your truth. God, that you would open our eyes to the kingdom that is and allow us to, to be ready, that we would be sober-minded, we would be ready for action, and that we would live as obedient children for your glory. God, we need you as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we're going to be in 1 Peter 13, if you want to go ahead and open there in your Bible. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we've been in Peter for a few weeks. Start, uh, what we do is we just walk line by line through the book. And the series that we're in is called Living for What Lasts. And we know that the thing that lasts is the kingdom of God. And we want to orient our lives to be a part of this, this kingdom work of advancing his kingdom. Christians in this book have been identified so far as called out exiles. And um, as we've looked through chapter one, we've been seeing what we've been called out to do, to, to have a living, we've been given a living hope that we get to live for and an internal inheritance that we get to receive. And this morning, we're gonna be given some commands, but I want you to notice this before we look at these commands. And I, I, I love this about the Word of God, that God's commands are always rooted in grace. You'll notice that the, the Bible goes from telling what God's done for his people, even in the Old Testament. Then, after, after showing what great love God has poured out on us, then he tells us what he wants us to do so that our actions would not somehow justify us but our actions would be a result of the love and grace already poured out on us. So this morning, God's going to tell us that as he's going to tell us, the ones who are the called out ones, what we are called to do. So here's the what is true statement. We've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus to conduct ourselves worthy of our king. So what do we do with this? The call of the called is that we would choose obedience to God over all things, even our own desires. So my goal is, if you would wake up in the middle of the night, step on a Lego, lay back down in bed and go, man, what was that about? It's that we would put God's, God's call on us to obedience over our own desires. That's what we're doing with this this morning. So let's look at our text together, starting in verse 13. The sound of flipping pages is a blessing to my heart, by the way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but... As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout, um, throughout the, the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So first we're going to look at verses 13 through 17, and we're going to see the conduct of the called. And when you look at your Bible, like in verse 13, and you see a therefore, it's cheesy, but it's helpful. Ask yourself what the therefore is there for. Get it? Why, why, why is it there? And that therefore is therefore acting like a conjunction. So one thing that we poorly do as Bible readers, or I won't put that on you, but I'll put it on me. When, when I move from sermon to sermon or from subtitle in my Bible to subtitle when I'm reading, I pretend like for some reason that the author has forgotten everything he's previously written. Not the case. And the therefore here is a conjunction tying everything that he's previously said about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Trinity and, and, and being called out exiles and in uh, 12 verses of God's, the beauty of God's grace being poured out on us. Therefore, he's going to tell us how we're to conduct ourselves. And if we were just picking up the command and, and leaving out the grace and not holding on to that therefore, the results would be horrible. The results would be a, this is how people walk away with works-based salvation. Instead of seeing the holiness of God and the commands of God that we should act out as a response to God's grace and power working in us and as a response to the great love that he showed us in Jesus. So the things that the things that we're commanded to do are a result of what he's already done for us, not as the thing that's making him somehow love us. That's a different gospel. That's the false gospel presented in the book of Galatians that we went through. So in our passage there are three main imperative verbs and if you're anything like me, you're closing your eyes going, why are we in English class? This is the Bible written in Greek. Well, because these imperative verbs let us know what we're actually being commanded to do. These are the things we're being told. You, they're musts. Because guess what, God? When, once you come into the kingdom, the king's not saying if you feel like it. When he gives you a command, it's a command. So here's, here's the things that we're told in verses 13, 15, and 16. The first one is to set your hope in verse 13. Verse 15, the second command is to be holy in all your conduct. And verse 16, to conduct yourself in the fear of God. So those are the, the three clearest things we are to walk away with from our passage. 
So let's look ver- first at verse 13. Um, the called are to set their hope on Christ. We'll look at our text again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your, your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're commanded to set our hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ, but how? Good question. Thank you, Peter. He gives us uh, his answers. First, he tells us to prepare your mind for action. Now, if you're reading now the King James or the New King James, your um, passage talks about girding your loins of your mind for action. Well, the translators that of the NASB, the ESV, and most other translations are like, that doesn't mean as much to, to our modern context, but let's talk about this, because it's literally translated, gird your loins. So you'll remember, first century, these men were wearing like cloaks, also known as man dresses. And um, so when you would see a, what it meant for them to gird their loins is they would bend over, reach back and grab the back of their man dress, pull it up and tuck it into their belt, making a giant man diaper. <laughs> now, it's funny to us, but if you saw that, you knew two things were taking place, either intense physical labor or war. When they would gird their loins, that meant they were prepared for action. That means they were getting mentally ready for what was about to take place. Um, our equivalent would be, um, we, we talk about like rolling up your sleeves to get down to work. Or um, if you're ever in the mall and you see ladies start taking off their earrings, what's about to happen? They're getting mentally ready. A fight is coming. And the command is to get your mind right. And Peter, he says, get your mind right on Christ because that will be work. It's going to be hard, but you must be prepared You have to get your mind right because most of the Christian battle is fought between your ears, in your heart. It's it's internal. Brothers and sisters, for us to conduct ourselves according to our calling, each must be preparing their mind daily. Well, how do we do that? You know, as a preacher, application is a lot of time the exact same, and this is one of those. In prayer and in the word. That's how you prepare your mind for the fight that's ahead. That's how you prepare your mind to live for Christ. It's getting alone with God, being still, even if it doesn't feel like you're doing anything. Being obedient and and putting yourself in front of the word and being in front of God in prayer. How can we expect to bear fruit in season if we are starving our souls from the water of the word? We all get drought. Look at this lovely shade of yellow that our grass is right now. When we walk on it, it crunches. It's because it's a drought. The reason that every time the the slightest temptation blows through and you feel yourself crumble and crunch you feel yourself break apart and and give way, it's because you've not nourished your soul in the water of the word. 
You have to get your mind right. Get your mind right for the reality that you now live for something greater than yourself. And the way that you conduct yourself at work, at school, in, uh, in your home, these actions all have eternal consequences. What? How, how can they have eternal consequences? Because everybody around us, they're eternal beings. And God has put you in your, your hobbies. He's put you in your schools. He's put you in your jobs to advance his kingdom. And these people are coming and talking to you. And if you are walking in sin, if you're not ready spiritually, those people come to you spiritually ready. What's going to happen? Your mind wasn't right. You're going to miss the moment. And it might have eternal consequences for them. We do this in prayer and in the Word. The next, the next thing Peter tells us on how we are to set our minds on Jesus is by being sober-minded. Now, this is not a call for Christians to refrain from drunkenness. You have different places in the Bible for that. That would be a misunderstanding Peter is telling believers not to become dull of mind to the things of God. Like wine dulls the senses. When, when, we look, when we're not looking at the world through the lens of the kingdom of God, the world becomes like an anesthetic to the things of God. We become numb. And instead of drawing near to God, we draw near to our fleshly desires. We are to, as your text says, be preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to be ready for action and aware of the things of God. And the way we live should be a way that we've set our mind fully on the hope that's in Jesus Christ. I love this word grace in our passage. Grace means unmerited favor. We can do nothing to earn God's favor, his attention, his love, his salvation. But instead, he, he freely gives us his, his favor, his, his attention, his love, his salvation. But I like to, to think about grace always with mercy. My, my definition of, of grace is a little bit different than the one you'll find in the lexicon or whatever you look it up in. So I, th I think about uh, mercy as not getting what I deserve and grace as getting something I don't deserve. So with, with mercy, I, I deserve to go to hell. I deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on me. I deserve everything bad in this world right? That's what I deserve because I've broken God's law. But God's mercy is me not getting what I deserve. And grace is getting something we don't deserve. We don't deserve the God-man to come and die for us. We don't deserve to, to, to obtain salvation by no effort except for the effort of someone else. 
We, we, we don't deserve that. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve the love of God. We don't deserve a living hope. We don't deserve a resurrected Savior. We don't deserve an inheritance that is this unfading and imperishable. And we don't deserve to reign in heaven and eat from the table of the king. We don't deserve all the, the, the good things that he's given to us. We don't deserve it. It's all grace. And God is lavishing grace on us. And we are to set our mind fully on this grace if we are going to live through the lens of the kingdom. Let's look now at verses 14 through 16. We're called to be holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's command here is holiness. In verse 14, Peter tells us not to be conformed to what? To your former passions of your ignorance. First, when you come to Christ, he gives you a new heart. He gives you a new nature. The Holy Spirit, God, this is trippy. He literally comes and lives inside you. He indwells your heart. But you still have the old man. You still have that old sinful nature. The ignorant ways still live inside of you. And Peter says, do not be conformed to that former life. Before we get these new fancy refrigerators, like peasants, we had to go fill up ice trays with water <laughs> and stick them in, stick them on, you know, on the tray. And if you spilt it a little bit, it would freeze to the rack whenever it was time to pull out. You know, millennials and Gen Z, if you need a science project, come over to the house, I'll show you how to freeze some water. But that's how we used to have to do it back in the day. And you, you left the, 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 eye, the water in there for a few hours, and that water would be conformed to whatever shape it was in. You know, the dollar store one was the perfect rectangle and squares, but the rich people, they had that one that had like the hollowed out, um, and it was like circular. Yeah. So it would, the water would conform to whatever the tray it was in. If you are not sober-minded and ready for action, you will conform to the things around you. You will conform to the world around you. You will conform to those former ignorant desires of your heart. We're told not to conform to the ignorant things of the world. And notice, where is the danger in the text? Is it something external? You know, we like to blame the world around us for everything. Where does the danger come from? Your own desires. The former ignorant things that you've been brought out of. The Bible tells us that the heart is evil. Peter is telling you that your desires and your passions are ignorant and will, will draw you away from God. So, a lot of times people want to come to me and they're trying to justify some kind of sin that they're walking in. And they, they, no, I'm just following my heart. Just following my heart. 
Well, so was Judas. Like that logic breaks down. So was Adam and Eve. They were just following their hearts. The heart is deceitful and a wicked above all things is what the Bible tells us about the heart. We're not to listen to the heart, but we're to listen to God and his commands. If following your heart is your compass, you're not following true north like, you know, the old Disney princess shows would try to convince you of. Following Jesus in his word, following Jesus in his commands, that is true north. Peter is showing us in Christ as these called out exiles what our new identity is, not of ignorance, but as obedient children to the king. Verse 15 says, He who has called you is holy. It's a wordplay here on all this, this calling. We were called out, and the one who's called you, he is holy. And we are called and we are commanded to be holy as he is holy. It, your text says, He who called you is holy, and you are to be holy in all your conduct. Again, I want to point out to you that God calls us out and makes us born again before ever commanding an action or a way that we are to conduct ourselves in holiness. This is not a works-based salvation. But to be holy is to be set apart. The holy things in the temple and in the tabernacle were things that were set apart for the use of worship. And what's crazy is they were just kind of common things. There were forks and plates, and, but God had removed them from their common usage. He had set them apart. He had consecrated and made them holy and put them in his temple. God has consecrated you with the Holy Spirit. He has set you apart for a specific use and for a specific task. And that task is that you would lead people to worship, that you yourself would be worshiping in the way that you live your life. As exiles and strangers in this world, we are not to take up the customs and the practices of this world. We are not to conform to it. Rather, we are to be set apart. And we are to be set apart for worship in a way that's pleasing to God. Peter says, since it is written... You know, when this was being written, we didn't have an Old Testament and we had a New Testament. We just had the Testament. We, we, we had one. It, he's referring to the Bible that they had readily available. And he says, uh, the text tells you to be holy as I am holy. That's one of the commands of God. This is referenced all over the place in the Old Testament. But I think the clearest place that he's referencing because of the context is Leviticus 19.2. And it's because the context is talking about living separate from the people in the world. The direct context is talking about walking in, in fear and reverence to God. And this is what it says. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God's call and command for holiness in your life is to cover every nook and cranny of your life. There's, there's no area in your life that God does not look at and have dominion over. There's no area in your life that he doesn't look at and claim as his. So, your money, his. Your sex, his. Your sexuality, his. Your health, 
his. Your aspirations, his. Your hobbies, his. Your friends, his. Your words, his. Your thoughts, his. Everything about you has been redeemed for him. It's all his, and you are just stewarding it to be used in the way that he has defined in this book. And this flies in the face of Western American individuality and our desires for self-government, self-autonomy, self-sovereignty. And we're, we're not like the rest of America. We're Texans. We, we fly our flag at the same height as the American flag. We want it more than any of them. But the Bible, everything's subordinate to the commands. Everything. Being unified with Christ necessitate, necessitates our conducting ourselves in holiness and in obedience. Living in holiness not as we comfortably define holiness, living in holiness as God has defined holiness, defining sin how God defines sin. And I think this doesn't sit with, well with, with us, with many, because we want to seek our own happiness, we want to seek our own pleasure, and we're taught that we are to seek our own happiness and that we're to seek our own pleasure at whatever means necessary. I mean, I, we, we have these conversations all the time, and they use logic something like this. Well, wouldn't Jesus want me to be happy? Wouldn't Jesus want me to be happy? If that thing that makes you happy is in direct contradiction to the holiness or the commands of God, no, he would not want you to be happy. He would want you to give that thing up as an offering. God has called you for obedience over comfort. He's calling you to holiness over happiness. And if that statement makes you feel uncomfortable, that God is more concerned about his holiness than your happiness... I would say that you on some level have bought into a false theology because what that theology does is it puts you at the center of your Christianity and you have to put yourself underneath Christ. Christ has to be the center of our Christianity. I think the prominent theology in America has replaced the God of the Bible with the God of self the all-powerful me, and we, we, we surround it with biblical language to make us feel better about what we're doing. Some theologians have, have called this M-E, meology. The theology of meology focuses on you being enough and teaches this toxic idea floating across churches and social media and TV about self-love. You, you can hear it come out of, uh, with this like therapy speak as people are talking to you. The teaching is that I have to put myself first to find happiness and to find fulfillment. Then I'll have the ability to serve others. That's so anti-Bible, it hurts. And I hear this vomited all the time. 
I had a conversation just last week with someone wanting me to do something for them that was against the text. And their argument as to why I should perform the thing for them was out of therapeutic self-love. This, 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 this self-love talk that, that tries to subordinate God's commands to their sinful desires. People who buy into this mess normally are a mess. And they're constantly living on the emotional brink of a breakdown. And if that's you, I'm not here to beat you up, but I want you to hear me clearly. The reason that you feel so emotionally tired, you feel so horrible on the inside, and you're doing all the things that they're telling you to do, it's because they're telling you to seek your kingdom first, and all these things will be added unto you. The Bible says, seek his kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus' yoke is easy. Jesus' burden is light. And what you're doing to yourself and adding Jesus to it is you're, you're putting this crushing burden on yourself that will crush you emotionally because it's telling you that you're enough. The Bible tells you that you're not enough. And you get to rest in not being enough because God is enough. Take that yoke off. When you put yourself on the throne of your heart and you shroud your self-worship with biblical language, you've done the same things that the Pharisees did. The Pharisees created a religion, oral laws, that made much of them, that lifted them up, not making much of God. And then they were willing to argue and to kill to keep that alive. When, when you shroud this, this, this self-worship with the Bible, you're going to find yourself becoming an apologist for these things that make you feel good. That worth that you're working so hard for, it's just fool's gold. Putting yourself first is not going to lead to your happiness. It's probably going to land you in a worse spot, overwhelmed by anxieties, because you're going to find you will never, ever, ever be enough. Christ must be the center of your Christianity. And there, you will find joy when you say, I'm not enough, but God is. I've heard people talk about the difference in joy and happiness this way. Happiness is like a thermometer. It just tells you what the conditions around you are. Joy is more like a thermostat. When you have joy, it doesn't matter what those, what those things around you are doing. It sets the condition, doesn't it? It changes. We're comfortable with, with some of God's definitions of sin and, and standard of holiness, but some of the things we're not comfortable with, and we want to soften and redefine these things to make us feel better about ourselves and the ones that we love. And I just want you to know when that's the case, that is just more meology theology. 
and there's no joy, there's no happiness, and that road leads yourself or it's going to lead others down that broad path that leads to destruction. When you're united to Christ and you seek first his kingdom, all these other things will be added unto you. Let's look at uh, verse 17 now. And the call is going to be to fear. Fear God more than you fear your friends and your family. The called to conduct ourselves, we are called to conduct ourselves in fear of God. Verse 17. If, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear <coughs> throughout the time of your exile. Look, God's not concerned, God's not worried about your social concerns. He's worried about you conducting yourself in holiness. That's what he's commanded. He doesn't care about how your friends, how your family, how your coworkers, how the world around you is going to perceive your pursuit of holiness. You are called to holiness, nothing less. And this idea of terror, we're not to, to be in terror of God, unless you're an unbeliever, then you should Fear God in that way because his judgment will be poured out on you. But it's, it's loving respect. The fear here is, is respecting power like driving or handling a firearm. You know how you know that somebody doesn't understand the consequences of their actions? Look into their car and see if they're texting while they drive. They don't respect the power. They don't respect the gravity of that moment. They don't respect what could happen. Or, you know, a, a gun, a firearm, it's, it's a lifeless thing. They're, they're safe until someone picks one up that doesn't have the proper fear of that firearm. They don't have the proper respect of what comes out of that muzzle. You are to live understanding the consequences of your actions or the lack thereof. You should live knowing that everyone you meet will face this impartial judge. You need to understand that this impartial judge is going to judge them according to holiness by the actions that they've done in their life. And they will either be guilty or innocent. And the only way that they'll be found innocent is if someone's told them about Jesus Christ and they put their faith and trust in him. Everyone else is guilty. And we should also know that that God is judging impartially as well those who are believers. You, know, you never hear anybody talk about the, the, the Bema seat. In, when, in the Greek culture... The, when, when someone would, would run a race, they would get awarded based on what place they came in. But after the races, after the competition, they would go in front of a real judge. And he would then give them rewards or punishments based on how they competed in the race that they had already ran. We will all stand as believers in front of that Bama seat of Christ. Well, he will judge us according to what we've done with this time on earth as believers. We should live in fear knowing that's coming. And fear in its most positive sense, fear inspires faithfulness. 
But let's, let's move on and look at this last part of our text, verses 18 through 21, and this is my favorite part of the text. And we're going to see the cost of the calling. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like, like the, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest, he was made known in the last time for your sake, whom through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God wraps his commands with, again, a gospel truth. He led in with the gospel and made like a gospel sandwich. So here's commands, gospel on top, gospel in the middle. Or gospel on the bottom, commands in the middle. And verse 18 says, we're to conduct, a, conduct ourselves in these, according to these commands, knowing, knowing what? Knowing at what great cost you've been redeemed, at what great cost you've been ransomed. And knowing this, knowing what we've been bought from, is why we are to conduct ourselves in reverence of the Lord. Peter begins to tell them what they've been ransomed or redeemed from, and that was what they've inherited from their forefathers. And we know from Romans 5, what did we inherit from our forefather Adam? Sin. We inherited his sin nature. And because we've inherited that sin nature, we sin. But we have been redeemed. We have been bought out of that. This word futile also means empty. Lives pursuing anything but Christ are empty lives. And these lives, they end in hell. Peter goes on to tell us we've been purchased with uh, what we've been purchased with, pulling us out of this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. And it, uh, we weren't saved from the abyss with, with gold or silver, but we've been saved from the abyss with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Peter has already made the case for who Jesus is in, in chapter 1, that he's the second person of the Trinity. He's God in the human flesh. Jesus is the, the, the prize and the precious jewel of heaven. There's nothing more precious in heaven than God, and God became man and dwelt among us and died for our pardon. And the blood of Christ is what we've been ransomed from hell with. And this is our motivation for living holy lives for him. And this image of a spotless lamb takes us back to the Old Testament. And this is pretty interesting because Peter's jamming a couple ideas together here. Because you get the ransoming. Well, the spotless lamb in the Old Testament didn't ransom. The spotless lamb in the Old Testament is takes you to the uh, Exodus. Remember, they were to put the blood of the, 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 the spotless lamb on the doorposts. And when the wrath of God was to come into Egypt, he was going to pass over. That's where we get the word Passover. He's to pass over all the houses that, that have the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. So one of the images that we're drawing here is that God's wrath because of the blood of Jesus is being averted. We, we, we're not going to face it because it's on the doorpost of our hearts. But the, this, this idea of covering and atoning, it takes us to the, 
to the mercy seat. It takes us to the temple. It takes us to the tabernacle. But those were, that was the blood of goats and bulls that we're covering. But we know that the blood of goats and bulls don't remove sin. The blood of goats and bulls don't ransom. But if you don't know this passage, this is a passage for you to learn. Isaiah 52 through 53. And that's where we're introduced to this suffering servant who was to be a, a lamb, spotless, without blemish. And this one would remove the guilt. So the blood of Christ both covers, it, it removes the wrath of God, and not just that, it removes our guilt. So here's the last question I want to ask you about our text. How long has God been planning this beautiful story? How long has God been planning to save this people? Was it since Isaiah? The Exodus? What about Genesis 3, 15? Remember, we've talked about that being the first promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. I've heard this preached, and I want to be clear what I'm about to tell you is I don't, I, I don't know that I've used this word from the pulpit since I've been here. It's a heresy that is in direct contradiction to God's word. This heresy normally goes something like this. God made the world perfect, and that was plan A. And then man sinned, so God gave plan B, and he gives us this law and this sacrificial system. And we couldn't keep the law, we, we, we couldn't do the sacrificial system right, so then God gave us plan C, Jesus Christ. That's an ancient heresy called Pelagianism. And nowadays we just call it open theism, meaning that God's not really in control of what happens. This view of God makes God incompetent and impudent. It makes a God without power. This version of God, just he's constantly reacting on his heels to, to the things that we're doing. But we're presented a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who is both in and outside of time. Jesus is not on his heels. Jesus, it was the plan since the beginning that he would come and die for us. God reveals himself as a God who is all-powerful. He reveals himself as a God who's bigger than what we can comprehend and is all-knowing. So when did God make this plan? Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last time. Revelation talks about this like this. It says he was the, the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. Verse 21, who through him, we are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that you, your faith and hope are in God. I know in a room of Baptists, foreknowledge makes us real uncomfortable. But we're not going beyond what the text says. When did God say he made this plan? Before the foundations of the earth. Now somebody's going to go, well, why did he make the world in the way that he made it? It doesn't answer that question. It doesn't. It's a mystery. 
It's kind of like that uh, situation in Job, right? Job's complaining to God, why did you allow this to happen? What's going on? When God finally shows up, he doesn't answer him. He just draws close and comforts him. We don't, he's not giving us the keys to this mystery, but we know that God did this, God planned this, before he ever made the world. But think about it this way. It's beautiful. God made this plan before the foundations of the earth that, that Jesus would be the sacrifice for sin and that he would raise Jesus from the dead and that we would live and dwell with him forever. Jesus, before the foundations of the world, looking into eternity, knowing the sin, knowing the hatred, knowing the rejection, knowing the blame, knowing the mocking and the beating and the torture that he would take, he still said yes. He still said, I will do that. Why? John 3, 16. For the sake of love. It is, what's driven this divine drama is the love of God for us a sinful people. It's a desire to dwell with us forever in heaven. It's a desire, this, 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 this promise, this hope that God says over and over and over and over that I will be their God and they will be my people. And that's the culmination of Revelation 21 when the God who has looked since before creation is standing in the new creation with those who he's redeemed. It's a beautiful tapestry of events that God has woven together. And each covenant is not somehow a new plan, but the, each covenant is a new way that God is revealing how he was going to save his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And we get to participate in this love story. If today you don't know Jesus and you're like, that's a lot. I, I'm interested in this, this love. I'm interested in this Jesus. The band's going to come forward and they're going to play a song. I'm going to be standing right there and I'd love to talk to you about that. What it looks like to enter into this relationship. But Maybe, maybe you're here and God's, he's inviting you to, to participate in his love story in a different way. You've already experienced the love of Christ and he's calling you to advance his kingdom and show other people his love. So how do, what's the first step to us even getting there? Set your minds on the things of Christ. Be sober-minded, be ready for action. Prepare yourself daily so that when the opportunity comes, you get to walk someone like a midwife from the, the land of darkness into God's glorious love. If you will, bow your heads with me.